Okay, so the reading today is from Matthew chapter 5, verses um, 13 through 20. Um, You are the salt of the earth, but if uh, salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city, set, uh, uh, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever, uh, re- whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your, righteous de- uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hello. Hello. <laughs> All right. And I watch out. I almost lost a cell phone, and I'm tangled up here. It would not be RUF if I was not. Look at that. Okay. Um, very proud of the soccer skills being resurrected. Okay. Um, Welcome. Hello. My name is Sid. Uh, welcome to week four of the spring semester. How's that going for you? <laughs> Silence, <laughs> as usual. Um, so, anyway, Reformed University Fellowship is what we're doing here. It's a large group. Uh, Reformed University Fellowship is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve Davidson College, serve the campus, and serve you all, wherever you are and whoever you are, and we mean that. We don't want to be a ministry or a space that gathers only one kind of person. We want to represent, we want to feel welcoming to every possible personal background, every possible scene on campus. So uh, in that end, we actually even mean that about where you are with Jesus and Christianity, which I'm assuming is probably pretty varied in this room. Um, we, whether you call yourself a convinced or unconvinced person, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or whether you wouldn't feel comfortable with any of those labels and you want something in between or none of the above, we're really glad you're here. And we hope you feel welcomed. Um, thanks so much for coming. And just especially if you're new, this is your first time or your first time in a while, thank you. Uh, we're so glad to see you. Thanks for taking the risk and the time to hang out with us. Um, so what are we going to do when we hang out together? We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're doing in large group this semester. We're, this is our third week of looking at it. Um, and I'll say this. We're looking at the book of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again. These are likely, likely the most well-known and most often quoted sections of the Bible, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, Sermon on is also likely the most famous speech by the most famous person in world history, Jesus, and the most famous book in the world, the Bible. Okay? So aside from, like, the worldwide fanfare and world historical fame, I'm going to say what I've said before. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I, I would say, is an essential Christian reading. Okay, essential Christian reading. 
historically it's been central to every generation and every culture's take on Christianity. It's been central to their understanding and our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And so that means whether you call yourself a Christian or not, this is important. But I would also say whether you call yourself a Christian or not, um, or where you feel comfortable with either of those terms, we all tend to read the Sermon on the Mount the same way by default. Two more chapters of good advice that I should really just get around to following. Okay? But if Jesus' words to us here and elsewhere are mere good person to-do list, okay, if that's what it's really about, we will either foolishly think we can do it, and we'll judge others that don't do it or can't do it, or we will try it earnestly, take them seriously, miserably fail, and then ping-pong back and forth between trying harder, what I call push-ups for Jesus, and quietly quitting it all. Okay? So, I'm going to invite, I think the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount is actually an invite. It's an invitation. It's uh, Jesus showing us what it looks like to live intentionally with him in this world. And the other part of the invitation is Jesus asking us to see the world and our lives differently. To see them with spiritual imagination. And so we, alright, fine. I am calling this series, okay, Beyond Good Advice seeing our lives with spiritual imagination. And because I know you guys love my subtitles, I'm just calling it Beyond Good Advice. <laughs> okay, so that's what we're up to. So before we step into the Sermon on the Mount again, and, and perhaps the second scene of the Sermon on the Mount, would you pray with me and for me once again? <coughs> Father, thank you for this group of students. Thanks for this time together. I pray that um, you'd help us to count it as precious that you would show up and that you would show up with holiness and glory and kindness and tenderness and that you would meet us where we are. Some of us are flu-ridden. Uh, Some of us are just coming off or just going into that season. Some of us are um, just feel like we're spiritually sick. And some of us feel like we've, we've never had a sick day in our lives spiritually. And I pray that you just be with all those different conditions of our hearts and that you'd meet us uniquely by your spirit. And I pray that this word would be pressed upon us and that we would see you, Jesus, high and lifted up and you'd be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we do pray. Thank you for this time together. Use it. Um, help us to know you better, Jesus, wherever we are with you. In your name, amen. Okay, so this past Saturday, just a few days ago, true story, my wife, Tier, I have her permission to tell the story, went to a workout gym in Cornelius, okay? That she was in a rush, the parking lot was kind of full, and so she just parked where the only open space was. The parking spot was in front of another business next to the gym, right, one of these typical things. Had a movable sign in front of it, she thought, oh, no big deal. She parked, she went inside, she worked out really hard, heavy, heavy jump roping, I don't know exactly what they do. It seems very intense. Um, you know, it's got some name out of the Hunger Games, you know, like post-apocalyptic, you know, destruction you know, mutiny on the SS, workout, whatever. But anyway, they, uh, they, you know, she's working out. She's doing heavy, heavy jump roping, jumping, whatever. <laughs> what? It's fair. Um, after a long workout, Tear comes out and goes to her car in a daze, and then she sees a white piece of paper fluttering out of the corner of her eye on her windshield. And it's, there's this note that's been stuck conscientiously underneath her windshield wipers. And she goes, oh, that's probably like a flyer. 
some sort of advertisement. And she goes over and she looks and sees it's handwritten. And she goes, oh, that's really touching. <laughs> um, and so she goes over and there's the following anonymous note, uh, written in pen, all caps. <laughs> and I quote, hey, why are you parked in, in handicap area? Very rude. Learn to read. The phrase very rude was underlined just in case you missed the point of the note. <laughs> that, you know, Tia was going to just think the note was being kind <laughs> and that she was just in the right. Um, sure enough, behind the movable sign that had been placed kind of at an angle she couldn't see, there was a handicap sign. And so she, she did park in a handicapped space. Uh, but to my mind, the story isn't about accidentally doing something illegal. Okay. It's really about okay. uh, It's really about what drives someone to write a note like that. <laughs> I could spend a whole sermon on this. I'm going to try to hold back. And I want to ask, what drives someone to write a note like that, and how receiving these kinds of notes makes us feel? We're going to talk about that for a little bit. I'm sure all of us here have done something accidental or not so accidental and someone has called us out for it, right? Have you had those moments? Perhaps it's difficult, it's like really hard to dig through all the, the frozen fearful memories that you have inside of you. But um, let's start with something small. You weren't prepared for a class and in the class discussion they found out big time. <laughs> or you said something foolish and then someone fact check you using Google, thanks a lot. Or they subtweeted you online. But you felt embarrassed and ashamed, and then you made some sort of a vow, which we all do, in order to avoid feeling that human again, and to rewalk that perfect tightrope that you were doing so well on before everything got caught up. In other words, after I get caught and after I get called out for something, I have this sort of resolved fear. I'm scared to make the same mistake, and so to feel that way again, and so I make a resolution to prevent that from happening and double my efforts. But what about the other side of the equation? Like, what about the person who chooses to pick up the, his or her pen and feels the need, compelled to write in all caps with underlining, <laughs> that, that drive that makes you and I, me, want to call out somebody, to catch somebody in the act? Um, I spent a good deal of time this break with this book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. <laughs> so You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's a nonfiction book by a journalist named John Ronson. He's Welsh. His voice and accent are wonderful, soothing like a bath. Anyway, he, uh, he spends the better part of 300 pages. I, I wish it was an audio. I read it in the book version. He spends the better part of 300 pages investigating why we feel this need to shame people, especially on Twitter. He's very focused on Twitter. For the time being, I'm going to bracket the conversation on the hashtag MeToo. Um, we will probably come back to that next week um, when we talk about some of the things that Sermon the Mount talks about later. But I'm just going to think about how Twitter and the things that people get mad about Twitter, and hopefully in your mind you can bracket me, the Me Too movement, okay? So while Ronson's comments on, he's sort of saying, why do people feel the need to shame people? And Ronson's commenting on the entertainment and the high drama value of shaming people, right? It's something to read, it's something to get involved in, to participate in. Um, Ronson settles on the idea that he and others, because he's participated in shaming before too, that there's this deep down desire for strangers all over the world to tell me I was right. To punish others' misspeakings. To do something good. To buy friends and become accepted into the system. 
and finally to indulge in the dark thrill of bullying in a righteous cause. Well, that's like really a complex system of motivations. At its center and beneath the pride involved there, there's this idea of righteousness, right? We're t- to be told we're right is what we're after. To be on the right side or to be in the right. A lot of the public online wars are about that, right? On the right side of something as huge and abstract as history, I want to be on the right side of history. Or just to be on the right side of a friend group, you know, whether it's on campus or online. And really, this idea of righteousness is at the center of our passage tonight. Verses 13 through 16 show us what righteousness is, and verses 17 through 20 tell us what righteousness is. And in this passage, just like in the parking lot or the classroom or on Snapchat, we see that righteousness is in itself a good thing but that righteousness can bring out some bad emotions like fear and pride. The fear of accidentally or intentionally failing to do right or to be right, or the pride sometimes associated with pointing out other people's failures. Okay. So in, in a w- world where we often publicly debate what's right, I mean, this is a huge topic, like, in not so many words, we never actually sit down and go, we're going to talk about what's right. <laughs> okay, we don't do that. We just, we just argue about Hobby Lobby or whatever, okay? Um, and we privately wonder at the same time what limits and directs the pursuit of money and the pursuit of power and the pursuit of excitement. While we're doing kind of that public-private dichotomy, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 are picturing and explaining. They're showing and they're telling what righteousness is and what righteousness isn't, okay? And they confidently yet humbly show us how to get righteousness and how to live this true righteousness out. So are we tracking so far? Verses 13 through 20 define and show the way towards righteousness. And I do this in two stages, and this, by the way, is on your handout as usual, on your outline. Um, sneaky way to get a four-point sermon in two points. I don't know if you saw that, but anyway... First, Jesus gives us a word picture of what righteousness looks like lived out. Verses 13 through 16 show us what lived righteousness looks like. And it looks like first salt and then light. Okay? Second, Jesus reminds us of where we get this righteousness from. What it is and what it isn't. Verses 17 through 20 tell us where true righteousness is. It's in Jesus and it's not in our good behavior. Okay? So as usual, the outline is on on your handout, but then also we're going to begin with the beginning, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16 together, and we're going to start with how salt and light picture righteousness lived out. Okay? So to properly interpret Jesus' use of salt, the word salt, we kind of need to know how Jesus' historical time period used and understood salt. Okay? I'm going to do this as an aside. It's actually really significant that there are better and worse interpretations of the Bible, believe it or not, okay? And their quality, the quality of the interpretation depends on better or worse understandings of the grammar and the history behind the text, okay? So part of what we're trying to do is uncover some of the history here. Uh, And so to the best of my research, in Jesus' time, salt was primarily used in three ways, 
three. Most of you heard two. I'm adding one. Okay, ready? Okay, first, it was a preservative. Uh, they use it, you see this used all over in different cultures. They cleanse newborn babies with salt. I think that's really a fascinating image, but let's focus. Uh, they kept meat from spoiling with salt, like we still salt meats. Um, second, second use was preservative. The second use of the salt was seasoning. It adds zest or flavor to a food. Still does that. Zest, you like that? <laughs> okay. Third, <laughs> third was a fertilizer. Okay, this is the one that's probably a little bit new to you. People use salt as fertilizer in agricultural fields. It brought nourishment to crops and it killed weeds, brought death to weeds. Okay, so to these three basic uses of salt, Jesus adds the following. You all are the very salt of the earth. That's my translation of the very beginning of verse 13. You all are the very salt of the earth. I want you to notice a few observations before I actually apply this to your lives in Davidson. Okay, So bear with me. First, Jesus is using the second person plural, you all. Not clear in the English. Can we just adopt the southern slang? Can we do that for the Bible? Maybe there needs to be a new Bible written. Uh, but Jesus is the set, using the second person here. Salty righteousness is not just a solo project. It's communal. It's as a community that we go out as salt. Okay, that's important because a lot of times we visualize this as a solo project. Okay, second, Jesus is saying you all are. Jesus is not saying you all should be, or you all ought to be, or you all could be salt, right? Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, he's not saying you have to need to try and be something that you're not already. Nor is Jesus saying that you all have salt, like in your back pocket, something to offer, a skill set or an ability. Jesus is saying, if you buy into him, even a little bit, you personally are right here, right now, salty. Sorry. <laughs> you are salt. You preserve, you season, you fertilize it. You fertilize, like it or not. Okay? But third, you are not just a salt among multiple possible options for Jesus to work. You are the very salt. Okay? This means people like me, together with people like you, are Jesus' plan A. And guess what? He does not have a plan B through Z. Okay? We are his plan A to change the earth, the world for the better. Which, if you think about yourself for a hot second, is shocking. If I think about myself for a hot second, it's very shocking. Okay. And the fourth and final point kind of is adds on. People like me and many of you are the salt of the earth. That is of the world. The word in the Greek gay is actually meaning, this is where we get geology or geometry. It's about the world, okay? So if we're to act on who we already are, salt, how do we act, right? Let's be real practical, okay? Well, based on the metaphor, when you use salt, you can't just spritz it, right? You can't just mist it, okay? Typically, salt requires getting up and close and personal with the thing you're salting or the someone you're salting. In other words, we need to get attracted to the world. Okay? We have to actually engage culture. We have to get poured out of the salt shaker and onto the people and onto the systems all around us. We've got to preserve and season and fertilize justice. We've got to cleanse and re-energize and nourish the casualties of injustice. In the words of Frederick Catherwood, to try to improve society is not worldliness, but love. 
to wash your hands of society is not love, but worldliness. Does that make sense? And this world-improving saltiness can look like what kind of organization you're involved in on the side outside of school, but I would also argue it's what you choose to study. Okay? After all, the goal of learning about how the world works is so that you can help the world work better. Okay? You've got to know the rules in order to change them or break them. Okay? But in order to get a lot more concrete, because some of you are like, whatever, justice and justice systems, what is he? he's just talking. Okay? What, let's get a little bit more concrete. I'm going to talk about what this looks like culturally at Davidson, but I'm going to address it through the problem of the latter part of verse 13. The problem is, Jesus is saying, there's a lot of saltless salt that can happen. Okay? Saltless salt. Okay. Oftentimes, out of fear of being too narrow or too judgy or too standoffish, I find that as a Christian, I can dilute what's distinctive about my faith and my identity. Okay? Dick Keyes calls this assimilation chameleon Christianity. This is a helpful little hook to hang this on, okay? We're blending in with the surrounding society just as a chameleon changes its color to blend in protectively with its surroundings. Okay? This is like so tempting in a place like Davidson. I find myself doing it all the time. And my mortgage, my minivan, my monthly salary all depend on being professionally religious. Okay? All true story. And so I have to ask myself, and hopefully you ask yourself, do you say what you mean and mean what you say when certain hot button, possibly political topics come up? Okay? Do you say what you mean and mean what you say when certain hot button political topics come up in conversation among friends? Or do you, do you think that the Bible says what it means and means what it says when you're reading it and you come across something that feels a lot of friction? Okay. I love the way that David Bazan, who's a singer-songwriter, puts our internal chameleon-like doubts in a song. He's a great song. It's called Letter from a Concerned Follower. Okay. It's half sarcastic, but it's also really a lot sincere. And he almost, you kind of think about him praying these lyrics to God. He says, I'm just a little bit worried. Do you have some sort of plan? And I hear that you don't change. How do you expect to keep up with the trends? You won't survive the information age unless you plan to change the truth to accommodate the brilliance of men. The brilliance of men. Okay? So you can see he's kind of playing with that idea of eternal verities versus changing world. Okay? Yet some well-meaning Christians are going to fight this fear of feeling different with pride, okay? Instead of being salt to enhance someone or something that I engage with, it becomes all about me, okay? I overdo it, okay? The food tastes like bitter. It just tastes like salt, not food, all right? Or the crops are killed by too much salt, not enough nourishment, okay? We salt the fields, so listen to the way that Jack Hayford puts it. The church is called to be a cultural catalyst who will act as salt and light, but there are dangers. Salt, if it's used too much, becomes embittering. Okay? If you sprinkle it, it flavors. I don't think Jesus called us to rub salt in the world's wounds. God has not called me to be morally indignant. He called me to be spiritually vibrant. Okay? So... The line between moral indignation and spiritual vibrancy admittedly feels very thin. 
But here's, here's a couple questions to kind of clarify this for us. In class, am I clarifying a classmate's confusion about Christianity? Or am I defending my spiritual honor? Okay. Is that Instagram post really just personal expression? Or is it a personal insult in disguise? These are important to think about salt being too salty. Okay. And pride having its way. Yet, moving beyond fear and pride towards a salty, vibrant faith also actually extends into what we do next after Davidson. So the seniors have been like, finally, I'm going to talk about something. Okay, so <laughs> meditating on salt as fertilizer, a Christian college professor named Anthony Bradley puts it this way. We are supposed to get messy and go where nothing is growing right now. Instead of going where things are bright and new and exciting, we have a call by Jesus to explore opportunities that will probably not make sense in the eyes of normal people. Okay? This means we get to be a little less afraid of what people say we choose to do with our lives. For the record, that includes parents. Okay? I said it. It's on recording. All right. Yes, you get to graduate Davidson with a history degree. And you get to teach 7th grade social studies in West Virginia. Not for Teach for America. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay? Or maybe you could go pro in a sport. You're that good athletically, but you're just tired of it. And you see this need because your mom or dad is a single parent, and they've got lots of younger siblings to take care of, your younger siblings to take care of. And you decide to move back home and get a normal job. Or maybe you go corporate, Okay, and half the political science department size. In order, in order to learn, can I, can I do that? It's fine. Okay, in order to learn how to be a good manager, right? Maybe you think I need to learn from the ground up what it means to be a good manager in a business because eventually, in my middle age, mo most of you are likely to have lots of people working under you, and it would be so awesome if you didn't demand seventy-hour work weeks, like a lot of people do. Okay. So, in the face of others' often well-meaning questions and criticisms that provoke our pride, Anthony Bradley suggests that we are set free to love our neighbors and not feel like we're missing out or not living up to our potential. We are free to measure our value by the growth of other people, not by our comfort or our, by our vocational success. Isn't that a huge, cool, novel concept? Thank God, says the 30-something college minister who graduated from Davidson. Okay, moving on. <laughs> All right, sorry, I could help that. Game changer right here. Um, anyway, Jesus' other answers to what a lived-out righteousness looks like is, you all are the very light of the world. You all are the very light of the world. Much of what we just discussed with salt holds for Jesus' statement about light. It's plural, y'all, okay? A present tense sense given. It's not a future tense like status to earn. Okay, And Jesus' followers are still God's only plan to improve, yes, the whole world. <laughs> However, God does intentionally choose a different word here. He does not say salt again. He says light. Okay, Light in Jesus' time is really pretty, pretty easy. It didn't take a ton of research to do this. What's the primary function of light, the single function of light? To shine. <laughs> <laughs> wow, brilliant. Okay, light makes darkness less dark, okay? So that we can see what's ahead of us, like a torchlit city up on a hill, or what's around us, like if we're inside of a house, say, for instance. 
or still literally, we're still working literally, were light so that others can see where they're going. Verse 16. Okay, we're kind of tracking with all that. So if we're to act out of who we already are, light, what does that look like? Well, based on the metaphor, being light requires being more visible to others. Being put up on a hill in a valley, verse 14, or be putting up on a lampstand in a ha- in a, or an elevated place in a house, verse 15. But this visibility, not self-promotion, is useful and beautiful. We are to be attractive to the world. So if salt's about being attracted to the world, light's about being attractive to the world. We get to enter the darker places of this world. We get to go into nightmares, not just dreams. We get to go where broken people and broken systems are. Where people are hurt and where people hurt others. Places of injustice and oppression with people who are also sometimes physically, emotionally, and spiritually addicted. Strike that always one of those things addicted. Okay? Because we all are. And they're making bad choices from that posture. It could be the suburbs. It could be the inner city, right? It could be urban renewal in the city downtown center. Or it could be the rural medical mission. But present tense, it could be 1 a.m. in the library. Or it could be 1 a.m. in the courtyard of F. Okay? But again, I'm going to continue to try to get more concrete um, about what it looks like culturally at Davidson by addressing the problem that Jesus is speaking against in the last part here in verse 15. He's speaking against hidden light. We're tracking hidden light, okay? So oftentimes out of fear of compromising beliefs or values or feeling misunderstood, I find that as a Christian and a pastor, I can lose contact with spiritual diversity, the spiritually diverse society that I get to serve. And sometimes I find myself withdrawing. Dick Keyes calls this tribalism musk-ox Christianity. Again, another hook to hang on. Musk-ox Christianity. And here's what, I didn't know what a musk-ox is, so anyway, here we go. Ready? Musk-oxen. I'm going to try to say this as many times as possible. This is like a tongue twister. Ready? Musk-oxen are arctic animals. (laughs) Musk-oxen are arctic animals that form a circle around their young or their sick when they're in danger from the predators and they circle up with their horns facing outward. Okay? So a Christian group can protect itself likewise against contamination from the world when it loses contact with the world and hides its light. It's a community that is like a quarantine, right? It's a protective containment of Christian distinctiveness within the Christian ghetto or our Christian subculture. What does this mean? Okay, this means that there's a temptation for me and probably for a lot of you here there is like a Christian version of just about everything. Have you noticed this? If you look around, okay, everything in America has a Christian version, usually about 10 to 20 years behind, but still has it, okay? It's Christian education, it's Christian music, it's Christian TV, it's Christian movies, Christian underwear, whatever it is, you've got it, okay? And it's reassuring, honestly, I feel this, never to be challenged about why I think what I think, to feel superior in my unchanging, airtight, untouchable view of the world, This moves the question, though, whether you're a Christian or not. It's the question for all of us. Do you have friends that disagree with you? Do you have friends that disagree with you? And I'm talking about disagree with you on a fundamental level, about reality. Do they disagree with you about reality? Do they they disagree with you on a what is good for you level? That's so important. It's so easy not to have friends like that, no matter where you are with Christianity. 
And we can already see how we can use pride to feel less afraid of a world that often has more questions than answers and more styles of media and underwear than is frankly comfortable. Okay? So instead of being like a kind, guiding light to somebody in a dark and difficult spot, it becomes about me again, right? Not a light to see someone or something better. That's not what I become. Instead, I become a megawatt spotlight that blinds everyone to every other reality except for me. Okay? Listen again to the way that Jack Hayford puts it. The church is called to be a cultural catalyst who will act as salt and light, but there are dangers. Light is annoying if it glares in your face. In fact, you try to push it away. But if you let the warm glow of light show, people will come to it. I don't think Jesus called us to glare the light a foot from their eyes with a million watt spotlight. He called us to be the warm glow of his love. God has not called me to be morally indignant. He has called me to be spiritually vibrant. Okay. Again, what does that mean? Is it, is it spiritually vibrant or is it morally indignant when I avoid certain groups and certain places on campus? Okay. Is it morally indignant or spiritually vibrant when I avoid the conservative or the liberal people? Or when I avoid the up to, the, up the hill or down the hill place? Okay. Why am I doing it? I'm just asking the question. Okay. Are my political views primarily informed by my faith or by what my family and friends think? Another question. Okay. And here's an, even a better question. Can people actually disagree with my political views? Have I ever heard anyone disagree to my face about my political views? So important. Okay? Yet, okay, all of that true, we are somehow called to move beyond our fears and beyond our power and our pride and towards a salty, well-lit life. Okay? Or to put in the words of verse 16 in the form of a question, how do we do the kind of good works that give glory to God, our Father in heaven? How do I move into society, but not too far, not too fast? Or how do I come together with the church, but not for too long or too loudly? Or how do I not be anxious about my anxiety? Or proud about my lack of pride? Okay, see, this is how difficult this is. Or how do I live like all of this or feel like all of this and somehow be righteous? At first reading, if we look at verses 17 to 20, they seem to affirm our hunch about the Bible. Yes, that's right. God only cares about more good deeds and fewer bad deeds. Yes, you and I do have to live and feel like this and then some. Because after all, you have to outdo the best religious thinkers, the best religious feelers, and the best religious doers on the littlest pen strokes of every command that God has ever given. All 613 commands of the Old Testament, according to tradition. Okay? But I would argue a closer second reading of verses 17 to 20 is actually saying the opposite. It reminds us that tr what true righteousness actually is. Where is it? It's in Jesus, and not in our good behavior or in others' good behavior. And that's our second and very last point tonight. Okay? The temptation is to skip verse 17 and to focus on what good we got to do, verses 18 through 19, and who we've got to do the good better than. 
verses 20, right? Verse 20, the scribes and the Pharisees. But verses 18 through 20 are impossible. Worse, they're actually insulting without verse 17. Do you see this? You see, in verse 17, Jesus tells us, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying something really, really radical here. He's saying the whole story of the entire Old Testament is coming true in me. That's a huge claim. Okay, let me just tease that out. Okay, ready? All the people, the Old Testament fathers, the Old Testament mothers, the Old Testament kings, the Old Testament priests who weren't quite good enough. All of the animal sacrifices, that's a lot of lambs and a lot of goats and even a lot of turtle doves. They could not pay for one, even one human life. All 613 commands, the law which no one could actually perform perfectly or, or well. All of God's promises spoken by all of the minor and the major prophets, many of whose names we cannot pronounce. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, complete what's missing. Jesus' person and his work finished the story begun at the very beginning of humankind. The very beginning of everything. Jesus is the perfectly good king, the perfectly good priest. On the cross, Jesus is the human and divine sacrificial offering that is needed once and for all. Jesus perfectly obeyed every God-given command with all of his life. And Jesus was the yes and amen of every single promise ever spoken by a prophet by his death and resurrection. That is crazy. To put it another more specific way, to kind of like tie into what we've been talking about, Jesus was the fearless and humble salt of the earth. He was distinct even as he was trampled under people's feet at the cross. So that... We are righteous. Even when I want to blend in, no matter what failure feels most shaming right now in your life and my life, we are righteous because of Jesus. And Jesus was fearless and humble, the light of the world, entering into the darkest of darkest places, even as he was snuffed out on the cross and in the tomb. So that we are righteous. Even when I want to form a holy huddle or a God squad. No matter what shame I put on other people. In spite or, or consciously with myself. But here's the thing. Jesus fulfilling this law doesn't just change the way that God sees you. Which is huge. I can't tell you how important that is. He also, and he doesn't just change how you relate to the external world. Giant. We just talked about that for a long time. Okay? Jesus fulfilling the law changes who you are on the inside. The righteousness that Jesus gives us exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 20. Because it changes our hearts. Because it changes that central desiring place of who we are. The scribes and the Pharisees were the ultimate do-gooders. Do you get this? Okay. They tried to do more good and fewer bad things all the time. And they were really, really, really good at it. Okay. 
They were highly achieving, but they were doing it without a sincere and heart-deep passion. They were doing it for themselves. They had forgotten about other people most of the time, some of the time at all. And here's the thing. We do this. We climb a ladder, and we don't even know what wall it's leaning against. We are so driven sometimes, and we just don't even think about who are we driven for? What are we driven for besides us? I know that's challenging, but I feel that a lot even in ministry. So being driven and doing good only leads to fear. At least this fear that we have not done enough, that there's something left to do that's good. Or it leads to a pride that others haven't done enough or as much as we have done. Do you get that? You're never satisfied. You never have the value you're after. So how do you measure enough in a world that was full of more things than you can do in a day? If it's about us, that is an endless self-construction process. If it's about others, then entering and engaging is already enough. You see, Jesus, in the words of G.K. Chesterton, loved first and improved afterwards. I love that. He loved first, and then he improved afterwards. Okay? That is, in love, Jesus gave up everything for me and gave his everything first. His righteousness then changes us inside out so that we can live an upside-down life in this world. We can live a life that, like salt and light, improves everything and everyone around us. Because it puts them first. Like he put us first. Okay? Jesus starts with making me valuable, making me acceptable, making me righteous at a heart level. And out of that unconditional love, we begin to love in a very if-then conditional world. And that love, selfless motivations, courageously humble feelings, that full love not only accomplishes the smallest, most precise good deeds, that sweet, deep love far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious professionals, the do-gooders extraordinaire. But here's the thing. Let me tie this all together. Okay, there's another note that I recently took a picture of and put on my phone, which I took a picture and put tears note on my phone. It's <laughs> precious. Um, instead of feeling fear about my failures and my pride, um, or maybe or excuse me, feeling fear about my failures or pride about other people's failures, like what that note kind of invokes in me every time I read it, that tear got in the parking lot. When I read this other note that I just recently put on my phone, I only feel a deep, sweet, heart-level love. And here's the story. It was in the midst of a week of nights out for me. The very beginning of the semester is like my finals time. Okay, I'm very busy. And right before I left for a retreat a few weeks ago, I was feeling busy. And every time I feel busy, I feel doubly guilty. Like, I'm a pastor. I should know how to rest. Okay, sec, first, first guilt. Second guilt, I have a family. Okay, and they need me. Well, they don't really need me, but they need me to sit there and be distracted. Um, and so overlook... I feel this over kind of my time away and over my guilt and everything else. And in the midst of that, my seven-year-old daughter, Carol Druin, looked like she was up to something, which she's often up to something. <laughs> and I guessed the worst because she, was seven, she is seven years old, and I was a bit rushed to leave, and so I'm shocked that you maybe shocked I was, being, I was late. Um, anyway, so I left my bag downstairs, and I ran to grab something for the retreat, and I came back down, and when I opened... My, I, when I opened my bag next, I saw that Carol had planted her surprise in my bag. 
It was a note for me. <laughs> okay. It was and is a sheet of computer paper that's folded in half with DAD, some capital letters, just the two Ds, <laughs> and lowercase a, okay? DAD, written in pencil on the outside of the folded page, okay? And then you open it up. I opened it up the first night of the retreat. I had gone to bed, and I opened it up, and I read the inside note very carefully. And the top, it's two lines. The top line read, SUM, S-U-M, capital S, U-M-E, okay, some, one, W-U-N-E, two words, some, one, then there's a sticker of a bunny rabbit, <laughs> then a bottom line, and it says, loves you, exclamation point, someone loves you. My seven-year-old daughter had written a note reminding me of everything that matters, everything. She, Carol, loves me. And what's more, capital S, someone loves me. God loves me. And I keep this note nightly on my bedstand, and I keep it daily on my phone. Okay? It's a note of love, and I'm telling you, it's just like the note of love that God gives us. Jesus' own words to us, and it seems like it's just the least lovely letter ever, but it's such a love letter. Verse 17. Oh, no. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. For you said, forever. Words written over us for all time, even for our busiest, our guiltiest, and our most accusing seasons. Oh no, forever. I filled the law forever for you. You're righteous forever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thanks for the opportunity that your words provide for that note to us. Um, I pray that you would just be with our hearts as we take it in. There's a lot there. And I pray that you would be um, with this week for us, that you'd help us to live out of that love and less out of fear and, and pride, although I confess that I've got a lot of it even now. And I pray that you would meet us where we are and that you remind us of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.